0: So, as we start our time, why don't you open up uh, uh, with me in your book of Isaiah, the sixth chapter? Isaiah 6. Isaiah, the sixth chapter. Today, we're going to be talking about uh, moving, uh, about a heart of revival. A heart that is moved from religion to relationship, from an uh, impersonal um, form and structure to walk in with Jesus Christ in a relationship that explodes your heart into, um, into what's real and what's true. This happened in the, in, in the prophet Isaiah's life, and the record of it is in the sixth chapter. So let's read together. It says this, starting with verse one. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, which each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying and were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorpost and the threshold shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Almighty God. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and whom? Who will go for us? I said, Here am I. Send me. He said, Go and tell this people. Be ever hearing but never understanding. Be ever seeing but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused. Make their ears Dull and close their eyes, otherwise they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, For how long, Lord? He answered, Until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitant, until the houses are deserted and the fields run, or fields ruined and rav- ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken. And though a tenth remains in the land, it will again be laid waste. But as the terebinth and the oak leaves stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. Thus ends the reading of God's holy inspired word. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, Romans tells us in the third chapter, let God be true and every man a liar. And so Lord, we come to you as a family. We come to hear your word. We come because we believe that everything you say, every word in your word is true. And it is applicable to our lives to change our hearts and to move us and to live a life that is unlivable without Jesus Christ. I pray that you'll bless our hearts to be open, our eyes our eyes to be open, our ears to hear your word, and that, Father, we do not walk out of here like the unbelievers who hear and then it flows off the back like a, a duck, uh, the water off a of duck's back. But, Father, let us absorb it. Let us hear it. Let us know that you have been here and among us. For, Father, the message is more important than the messenger Your word is so true that we must hold on to it as a precious jewel. We love you, and we trust you, and we believe you for it. In the name of your Son, Jesus, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. As we come to this passage, uh, the prophet Isaiah himself is known as the Shakespeare of Prophets. His historical prophetic work spanned over approximately 53 years and he was called by God to be the spiritual leader of Judah under the rule of four kings, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. As he comes unto the scene, he comes unto a, a divided country, ten of the northern tribes of Israel and two southern tribes, and he's located himself in the southern tribes, both in Judah and Benjamin. He came unto the scene in a rebellious time. They had turned away from God. The northern tribes at this time were being taken captive by Assyria. And um, and through Isaiah, God was prophetically warning the southern tribes who who were referred to by even God himself as the, um, the evil sister of the two, following the northern tribes. And also through uh, Isaiah, there was a prophetic word that the Babylonians would be coming in uh, and destroying uh, Jerusalem, even though they were not yet a nation. He is, Isaiah is the most clear prophet proclaiming the coming Messiah. And in competition with Jeremiah, had one of the most difficult tasks on earth, to preach to a rebellious people who were religious, but had no relationship to a triune God. So as I was studying, I don't know what you do when you study God's word, but what I, was, what I do a lot of times, I ask questions. I said, okay, God, as I'm, I'm preparing for Sunday, what is it that Isaiah saw, that God saw, that made for a rebellious people? And so, as I did that, I was drawn to the first five chapters of Isaiah. The first thing that uh, that God was proclaiming to Isaiah was that the, that rebellion equals no longer knowing God. In the first chapter of Isaiah, the second verse it says, "Hear me, you heavens, listen, for the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its master." The donkey, its owner, but Israel does not know my people, do not understand. You see, there is a knowledge, according to 2 Corinthians 10 5, that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. It is worldly knowledge, and it is a knowledge that we as a people need to know exists. It's a worldview that is against God. And that is the first knowledge that people were turning away from God and rebelling against Him. The second is found in Isaiah 1, the 12th through the 13th verse. It says these words When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. Your new moons, Sabbaths, convocations. I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. It is when worship becomes about form and structure instead of about of a relationship with the Lord. If the worship team doesn't do as well as, you th- uh, as you'd like them to and you walk away and go, well, their music wasn't great today or the pastor's message was not as inspiring as what you're hoping to, It is a time for you to do an introspective, uh, where has my worship gone? Because the most important thing of the reason why you're in this place is to worship Jesus Christ. Not any human, not any structure, not any form. The third is found in Isaiah 2, verse 6. It says these words, You, Lord, have abandoned your people, the descendants of Jacob. They are what? Full of superstitions from the east. They practice divination like the Philistines and embrace pagan customs. The third mark of a rebellious people who are religious is that their religious practice begins to be, uh, have syncretism in it, the mixing of many beliefs. Psalm 106, 35 through 36 says, But they mingled with the nations, adopted their customs, their worship, worship their idols, which became a snare to them. When cultural beliefs start to undertake the truth of the word of God, that is when you know you're becoming rebellious. Fourth, Isaiah 2.22 says these words. It says, Stop trusting in mere humans who have but breath in their nostrils. Why hold them in esteem? When the fear of man becomes more than the fear of God, That is when you're becoming rebellious. Psalm 146, 3 and 4 says this, Do not put your trust in princes, in human beings who cannot save. When their spirit departs, they return to the ground. On that very day, their plans come to nothing. Do not put your trust in man. And then finally, Isaiah 5, 20 through 21. I do hear some pages turning. Thank you for that. It says this, woe to those who are wise in their own eyes. Excuse me, I'm going to start at 20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. When wrong turns to right and right turns to wrong, this is, I believe, the most devastating view and picture of a rebellious people that have turned against God Isaiah would say later on in the 59th chapter he would say this justice is driven back and righteousness stands at a distance truth has stumbled in the streets and honesty cannot enter but this is people where it gets interesting to me when we come to the sixth chapter And the fact that Isaiah has already been on the journey of doing the work that God called him to do. It's different than the prophet Jeremiah and Ezekiel. In in Jeremiah, his call came out of the first chapter. In verse 5 it says, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. And in Ezekiel 2, it says this about his call. It says, Son of man, I am sending you the Israelites to a rebellious nation that has rebelled against me. Isaiah's vision and call comes after the fifth chapter. And I think to myself, why is that? Certainly the Israelites were rebellious and moved from relationship to religion, but I wonder if in my heart, Isaiah himself, in his own prophetic work, had become hardened to the task. And the need for personal revival was in his life as well as theirs. Now, there are commentators that have said this was, a, this was kind of a memory that Isaiah had that when he was called from the beginning could be. But I just wonder, you know, it's interesting. I don't know about you guys, but I know that some of the things that I have gone through have caused me to question have you gone through time in your life that has caused you to struggle with the reality and relationship of God in your life? There's a woman that sits among you that was in my youth group, and I won't name her, but her first name's Katie. And, um, and she, uh, she came to me one day, and she had a folder. And in that folder, she had written on the front of it the character of God. And she said to me, she says, Wayne, I want to I live out the character of of God in my life. But you know, it's interesting. You go through hard times. You go through difficulties, right? And these start to ask questions of you. What diagnosis is shaking your world today? What family division has caused you to wonder if God is really loving? What rebellious child has caused you to sit back and say, you know, I wasn't perfect. But we raised them well and we did our best. God, what has happened? I want to challenge you with this morning. And I know that I don't know all of you, um, but I do know some stories that are among us. And you know some stories among me in my life. But I want to challenge you with this. The very thing that has caused you to question God is the very thing that the Holy Spirit is speaking to you and saying will you trust me now will you trust me now John 16 says this these things I have told you Jesus said so that in me you may have peace in this world you will have trouble trouble but take heart I have overcome the world so as we draw to this passage and we focus on it together Um, i'm praying that that your heart will be open to three questions that uh, that god i believe has led me uh, to ask one is how does god awaken a hardened religious heart second how does the atonement change everything and third what is the effect of the atonement of god on my own life now I've been saying a word for a bit here, and uh, I want to make sure that it's it's clear to you. When I talk about religion, I'm defining it as a man-made, man-reasoned, man-seeking after the image of God that he creates in his own mind. Religion. It is something that has, in in our in our country today, there is a phrase called progressive Christianity. It is this religion. It has been infiltrating our churches and changing the direction of the way that the church uh, looks at God's word, and I think that uh, I think it's time for change. And so I hear familiar words of a man uh, that for 21 years spoke into my life, and as Fred Vandenbosch would say to me, "Andersma, make sure that you always preach the gospel," and I say Amen to that. And so as we get into chapter 6, and as you're looking at your word, at your Bibles, Aaron, you got yours on the phone? That's so cool, Aaron. It took me some years to get that kind of, like, okay, it's okay, it's okay. She's not doing emails, she's not texting. (laughs) Praise God. We have so many ways that the word of God can come to us. So as we come into this, it says, the first phrase says this, In the year that King Uzziah died, you know, we can go quickly past that if we don't understand the historical context of that statement. You'll find it, we won't go there today, but you certainly can as you study further in this, in this passage throughout your week. In 2 Chronicles 26, it reads that, you, that Uzziah was, 20, was 16 years old when he became king. At that right age, at that right age listen you 16-year-olds who think you're too young, listen to what it says about him. It says in the 16th verse, it says, His fame spread far and wide, for he was greatly helped. Excuse me, no. It, let, me, let me say that again. It says in, the, in, um, in that chapter, it says, He sought God during the days of Zechariah, who instructed him in the fear of God. As long as he sought the Lord, he gave him, the Lord gave him success. At 16 years old, Uzziah sought God. Don't you tell me about being too young. Don't you dare. You're never too young. And so he had amazing success as he sought the Lord. He was in war. He was successful over the Philistines, Arabs, and the Ammonites. He built an army over 300,000 fighting men. In weapons and artillery, he rivaled even the modern-day weaponry. His, His time was a great time of growth. And for 52 years, he ruled over the nation. And yet, in his 52nd year, it says in the 15th and 16th verse that his, his fame spread far and wide, for he was greatly helped until he became powerful. But after Uzziah became powerful, his pride led to his downfall. That, of course, is the entrance into all problems when we become prideful. What did he do? He was the king of Israel, and he became prideful to the point that he decided that even though it was against God's law to do a sacrifice on the altar, he was going to do that, and he did. And when he came out of doing that sacrifice, he had leprosy, and he died. The Bible says that, and if you read the Bible, only 30% of men Finish well in Scripture. People of God, be awakened. Yes, we've gone through some tough things. Yes, we've gone through some hurts and pains. But in the midst of that, when you're in the midst of it, God is saying, wake up and hear my voice. I am here in the midst of this. Have you ever heard someone say, why does it take a tragedy to get our attention? We've had a tragedy in our family. A young lady that worshipped among you for years, our oldest daughter, Kimberly. She uh, turned away from the Lord, turned away from us as a family, turned away from her husband, divorced Eric, and, um, and is now living with a man uh, in, uh, in really a false existence. That was hard. I remember when when my wife said to me, she looked at me one day, she said, are we ever going to be okay as a family again? It was hard to go through that. We're not the same family. We'll never be the same. But in Christ, we're okay. The Bible says that I am close to the brokenhearted, and we found that to be true. So because of our stubborn hearts, God uses tragedy to awaken us to reality. I want you to think about the Apostle Paul, a very religious man. In fact, he was shooting to the top of the religious charts. But in Acts 9, he was knocked to the ground and blinded by the one he was persecuting. And it was told, you are my chosen instrument I will tell you what you must do. In Nahum 1.3, a verse that has become very important to me, it says, The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. His way is of the whirlwind and the storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. In the midst of your greatest storm, in the midst of the greatest difficulty, God is as close as he ever was. And if you'll trust him, you'll even see him in the dust. Because it's that moment that his heart is speaking to say, I did not cause this, but in the midst of this, my child, will you, will you trust me? When you ask that question, Lord, why me? Let King Uzziah moment lead you to say, Lord, show me what you what you want me to see in this moment about life and about me. He will answer that. And so as we go on, so we now know historically why this was a big deal, but what happened? What happened? God came to Isaiah in, in this moment and showed Isaiah who he was. It says, I saw the Lord. The Apostle John, in through the Holy Spirit, in the 12th chapter of the 41st verse, Isaiah said, He says this Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. This picture of the pre incarnate Christ was grabbing Isaiah's heart, and John, who saw it in the flesh, saw Jesus in the flesh, connected this moment. So, what is it that Jesus wants to show us in these moments of tragedy? First of all, he wants us to show his his sovereignty. It says here that I saw the Lord high and exalted. Do you believe that Jesus is above your problems? Do you believe that he is the one who is, Isaiah 40 says, he sits enthroned above the circle of earth and his people are like grasshoppers. This was so important to the disciples as they were going through a storm on the lake and as they saw Jesus Christ walking on it in the midst of their fear, they were reminded that he is the sovereign one, the one that is high and exalted, that is above the abyss and above our greatest problems. But not only high and exalted, but he's seated. He's seated on the throne. You see that in the in the passage, yes. Seated is a sign of being at rest and at peace. This is how Jesus was found at 12, and how he was found on the Sermon on the Mount. He went and he sat down. Why? Because you know what? In our times of, of difficulty, in the times that life causes um, things to happen, sin causes things to happen in our life, God's not wringing his hands. He is not freaking out about what's going on in the world. He is not worried about the future. Psalm 99.1 says, The Lord reigns. Let the nations tremble. He sits enthroned between the cherubim. Let the earth shake. Let the earth shake. Your Lord is seated. He's not wringing his hands. Can you trust him? And he's seated on the throne. Did you know that there are five pictures of the throne in Scripture? Here, Ezekiel 1, Daniel 7, Revelation 4, and Revelation 20. Guess what? They're all the same. Why is that? Because everyone over fifteen hundred years saw the same picture. God does not change; He's not man, like man. He does not lie, and He does not change. And as they saw, He saw this picture on the throne. It is, according to Ezekiel, it is beyond description. It's beyond description. The way that he describes this, it it appears to be like, it's kind of like, why? Because you and I cannot explain God. He is more mysterious and more beautiful and more wonderful than what we could ever conceive in our minds. And that should give you hope. Because part of the progressive Christianity that's going on today, what's happened is we've reduced God to our level, to our reasoning. We can't do that. He's beyond human reasoning. The fact that you're sitting in this room today is his great mercy and grace. It's his spirit that draws you, draws me to know the unknowable. What? What? Yes. Kids, don't lose this. Don't miss this. Don't fall asleep on me. Get this. It'll change your life forever. And so he gets this picture. But not only sitting on the throne, what does it say? It says that, that the train of his robe filled the temple. You know, when, when, a, when a, a woman gets married, she has a train but it usually goes maybe, maybe three to four to five feet behind. When the Queen of England uh, comes in for coronation, she will have a, she'll have a robe, and it will, it will go with her to all the way to the, to the end of the temple, and it will be still at the door. That's pretty long. She probably has to have people helping her because it's probably too hard to pull. What is she, in her 90s now? I mean, my goodness sakes, wow. Wow. But not only is God's robe the length of the temple, but it fills the temple from top to bottom, from side to side. Why is that? People of God, because he's enough. No, no, you you didn't hear me. He's enough. He's more than enough for you. No matter what you're going through, no matter how... Terrible your family life was, no matter how terrible your job situation is, no, no, if you have a broken family, no matter how extreme that is, he's more than it, and he's more than what you, he is enough in your life. Psalm 145, 16 says, You open your hand and satisfy the desires of living things. Do you have a divine contentment? Do you know God's enough that He's filling? He is filling your. Where's the temple today? Is it here? Aaron, where's the temple today? In your heart? Yes, thank you. Is that the right answer? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. It's here. He is enough for your soul. He fills you completely. Now listen, some of you aren't believing me, but he's enough. The things you've been desiring and wanting, he's already fulfilled it if you'll follow him. He's enough. He's enough. So God uses the tragedy to see the power, to see uh, and to show us his sovereignty, to give us peace to endure, and he also shows this, He shows us our power, his power to give life clarity. Look at it verse two through four. It says that above him were seraphim, each with six wings, two wings they covered their faces, two they covered their feet, and two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, "Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty." and the whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of his voice, the doorpost and the threshold shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Do you know how powerful God is? How many of you have seen the power of God work in your life? Raise your hand. Katie, you got your hand up? Yes, you do. Yeah, girl. (laughs) Hey, absolutely. Absolutely. Even in our brokenness as a family, we saw the power of God working. As it drew our family closer together, we now fast and pray every month for our daughter. Why is that? Because the Spirit of God, the power of God, draws a family from Columbia, South Carolina, to, uh, to Michigan to be crying out for life, believing that the power of God can do anything. Well, how do we know that? How do we know he's powerful enough? Well, notice what's in here. Isn't it interesting that angels are the first sign of that power? What are they doing? They've got six wings. Why? Six wings? With two of them, they cover their eyes because no one looks on God and lives. No one looks on God. He's so powerful that we can't even see him. Two, they cover their feet. Why? Because everyone is not like him. He is holy and we are not like him we are dirty before him and so they cover their feet and with two of them they're flying why do as will. do it now do it immediately always on task always ready to do what god wants them to do and so these angels are the first sign but isn't it interesting that in 1 Peter 1.12, it says this, even though they're so powerful, when it comes to salvation, all they can do is long to look at these things. Listen, people of God, no matter what power is outside of the power of salvation, the power of salvation is greater. And even the angels themselves can only look at what you as the redeemed have experienced, and they wonder, what's that like? What's that like? And so the first sign is the angels. They're singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Do you ever wonder why they say that? Now, they don't sing it. They say it. There's an important purpose of that why do they say that why you know why don't they say love 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 grace 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 why is it holy 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 throughout scripture holiness is the attribute that brings us to a place where we truly see who god is it isn't his love necessarily it isn't his grace necessarily. It is the fact that love and grace brings us to a place where we get to see God for who he is. He's holy. See, love and mercy reveals to us why God does what he does. Grace reveals the depth that God is willing to go to rescue his lost and broken creation, but, it is, but it, without the reverence of holiness, we will never see God for who he really is. I hope the next time you sing the song, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, you won't forget that. Because it is his holiness that draws us into his presence, allows us to see the grace and the distance he came for us and the love, the love that he has for each of us. And then, of course, the the doorposts and the thresholds shook. When we see the holiness of God, just like in Isaiah's day, the human being comes to the place of going, I'm in a place I don't know that I belong because he is something that is way beyond me. And it says that the doorpost and the threshold shook. It shakes us to the core. Have you ever been shaken by the knowledge of God? Have you ever shook and said, you know everything about me? You know the very word I even have on my tongue right now before I say it. And yet here you are before me. The Bible says this, there's a time coming that his voice shook the earth but now has promised once more I will shake not only the earth but also the heavens. The words once more indicates the removing of what can be shaken that is created things so that what cannot be shaken may remain. And so, for the prophet Isaiah, he saw the, he saw the power of God, he saw the sovereignty of God. It shook not only the doorpost in the temple, but it shook his own life. And then folk smoke filled because he could only take so much of it. And God knows exactly how much we can take, and it was gone but he was left shaking. There's a shaking coming. It'll shake this building. It'll shake anything man has made. Everything that's been created will be burned up and gone. But there is something that cannot be shook, and that is faith in Jesus Christ. It cannot be shook. And so as, as Isaiah sees this, his life is changed. And so what is the effect of seeing God for who he is? Verse 5 says this, woe to me I cried. I am ruined for I'm a man on unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the king, the almighty God. Ruined is defined as a complete state of destruction, a place where we come to the end of ourselves and our capacity to fit situations ruined is realizing that who we are and the insufficiency of anything in this physical world to fix us in a materialistic world we need to hear that but not only ruined he realized that he was unclean if you're familiar with that word you realize that that was the word that the lepers had to say Uh, when they had leprosy, if anybody would come around them, they would say, unclean, unclean. And people knew knew that they needed to stay four meters away from uh, the, um, uh, the leper. But in the midst of this moment, Isaiah realized something that Jeremiah said in the 17th chapter, and that we need to realize in a rebellious world that we live it says, the ninth verse, it says, The heart is deceitful above all things, and beyond cure, who can understand it? Do you believe that to be true? There's a, uh, there's a, uh, a website you can go to. It's called whatisawoman.com. And I think you'd be very interested to, to find out what the world thinks a woman is now. And they interviewed a doctor, and, uh, uh, and she, uh, they asked, they said, um, this person asked, they said, well, you know, you talk about being able to do um, ide- um, uh, um, identity transformations or uh, physical transformations from a, from a boy to a girl or from a girl to a boy, and you can do this at four years old how is that true? How does a four-year-old know this? And she said, well, you know, if they can imagine that they're another gender, then that's a really good point to saying that they need to be moved into that area. And uh, the guy said, well, they believe that Santa Claus lives too. Is that real? And she says, well, they do get presents on Christmas. He said, but is that real? She couldn't and wouldn't answer the question. We live in a world where hearts are deceived and where we're ruined, but we don't see it. Isaiah and David knew it, because David said in Psalm 51, 3-4, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. He isn't talking about low self-esteem. He's talking about realizing where he belongs in the presence of God. You see, when it comes to God, we ought to be getting low real quick. We ought to be coming in his presence and bowing before the one who deserves our worship. And that's exactly what Isaiah did. That's exactly. So he comes, he sees God for who he is, he sees himself for who he is, so now where you go with that? It's in here. Verse 7. Or excuse me, verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, "See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, your sin atoned for." The live coal represents the fact that we serve a God who is a consuming fire. He revealed himself at Mount Sinai. He revealed himself in the fiery pillar that led the Israelites through the desert. Mount Carmel, when fire fell from heaven. When the temple was built, Solomon's temple was built, says that fire fell and lit the altars. Our God is a consuming fire who will do one of two things. He will either, listen to this, burn up your sin, or destroy you. I know people don't talk like this anymore. But it's true. It's true. But look in the midst of it. It says that an angel went to the the altar, grabbed a live coal, and touched it to the mouth. This is such an amazing picture of refining fire Refining fire that that hits the center of the problem. Listen to me. Some of you in this room have come to a belief that your sin is too much. You just keep falling to it. You know what to do because you know what? I, I turn around, I see it, I don't want to do it, and then by golly, there I go again. And you go, I don't know if there's any cure. Well, according to the Bible, there is no human cure. Zero. But there is a heavenly cure. And he shows you here because he touches it to the lips. Why is that important? Because he said, I am a man, a ruined man, right? It says, An unclean, I have, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. It is touching exactly the center of the problem. And that's what atonement is all about that is exactly what jesus did jesus came in the form of man and in his life he was absolutely obedient to his father because that was the center of the problem see the center of the problem was our 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 great 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 grandparents adam and eve turned away and disobeyed god and that was the issue they lived a life of disobedience so jesus came living in our form and said my food to do the will of my father he lived perfectly obedient and that's part of the atonement but the other half of it is he became our substitute in being human he came and he took our place on the cross it says that god in in second corinthians 5 21 god made him who had no sin to be sin for us whose sin yours and mine so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Not a righteousness that we earn on our own, but a righteousness that is a gift from God through the blood of his son to you and me. Man, this is better than any any Super Bowl. This is better than winning the lottery. This is all for eternity. And God did this for you, how far he came to give his life for you. But look at this. I I think this is interesting. What did it do? What did the atonement do? Took the guilt away. Do you know that guilt is the main search engine of sin? It is guilt that you feel in your heart that drives you to do it again and again and again. And the evil one is saying, you know what? You're sinful anyways. You might as well just do it. And the guilt that's inside your soul goes, he's right. And it drives you to do it again and again. It drives you to the bottle. It drives you to the separation. It drives you to the the anger and the bitterness that separates people. It is the thing that drives. But in here, the atonement takes away the guilt. Peter uh, also affirms this, the first chapter uh, the first verse, or excuse me, uh, 1 Peter, uh, the first chapter. And it says these words in the 18th through the uh, uh, 21st verse. Um, hold it. i got to go back to the first chapter. There, thank you. I was going to say, that's not the verse I was talking about. Here it is. For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors. That's a really great line. That's a really great line. That is all that's been handed down outside of Christ. But with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect, he was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him, so your faith and hope are in God. It is the atonement of Christ that takes, removes guilt and our sin from us. And as we receive and believe in him, we are what the Bible says, born again. No longer the identity of what we had in this world, but a new identity in Jesus Christ. And Ezekiel 36, 26 says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove you from your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Today, have you received that atonement? Has the the, um, angel come with the tongs of the fiery coal and touched you exactly where you have sinned? If not, today is a great day, great day to receive it. But I say that with a warning. Because, you know, we look at Christianity as though it is something that, that we live out, and you know what, we just, hey, I'm saved now, I can do whatever I want Uh uh-uh, well, you can't. Seems like there's a verse in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 21. It says something about you've been bought, purchased with a price. Your body is not your own. Live in such a way unto the Lord. Great, so I'm going to, I'm going to have this big ministry and thousands of people and 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 make all kinds of money and i'm just gonna thrive in america that's i mean that's what aaron's thinking she's just you know man i just i've all kinds of money i just oh absolutely just you know she's got red hair girl i come on i know I'm kidding i don't know what that has to do with it sometimes i just come up with these things sorry dear but no your life is not your own so listen to this Listen to the response. I love this. Have you said this? So, so he sees God for he who He is—the sovereignty of God, the power of God. He sees himself ruined. He sees the beauty of the atonement in that God so loved the world, so loved Isaiah that He gave His one and only begotten Son. How did He see that before Christ came? That is a mystery. But He sees it all. And in verse eight is the only response, and that is when I heard the voice of the Lord saying. Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And he said, Here am I, send me. Only response. Now listen, only response of a redeemed heart. It doesn't matter anymore, Lord. It doesn't matter. Whatever you want me to do, I'll do. I don't care. Listen to the call. Listen. It's kind of like... um. Noah's call, right? For 120 years he preached. Nobody listened. He said, Go and tell this people, be ever hearing and never understanding. Be ever seeing but never perceiving. Make the callous, make the heart of this people calloused. Make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their heart, and turn and be healed. Ha! You know why it's important to open your eyes up, open your ears up, and open your heart up? That's where the healing is. Listen to him. He's there. This is an impossible ministry. That's exactly what's happened in America. Do you know that there's 1,500 pastors that leave the pulpit every month in America? Why is that? Because it has become so abusive in the church. It has. It has. Human control tries to control everything. Stop it! Holy Spirit's supposed to be in control of this place, amen? Yeah! And so, yeah, it's just, it's incredible. But, and so, and so, he was being sent into a most difficult thing. The Bible says this. The Bible does not say go make converts. The Bible says this. Wow. Wish you didn't have a clock up there. Um, The (laughs) Bible (laughs) <laughs> I know, kids, I get it, I get it. The Bible says that we're not called to make converts. We're called to make disciples. What is, what is the act of making disciples? You know what it is? We walk with each other. We walk with each other. We love each other. We let the word of God reign in our life. And we walk with each other, not individually, but together as a family. And that's what we're called to do. But Isaiah says later on, it says in the 55, 55th chapter, he says, 10th verse, he says, as the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish, so it yields seeds for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. We're not called to make converts. We're called to disciple. And the reign of this word will do one of two things. It will either make the hearts of people calloused or it will open the hearts and make it soft. There's no middle ground. You are one of two people in this room today. You're either calloused and going, I don't believe that stuff, don't tell me that stuff, or you're somebody where your heart is being pricked by the Holy Spirit and you're saying, Lord, open. Now I love the 11th, and I'm, I am, I'm getting close to end here. I love the 11th verse. It's just exactly what I would ask. Uh, then Isaiah said, or I said, uh, for how long? <laughs> you ever asked that question? Oh, how long do I have to do this? How long? Nine years was not enough with these tremendous kids at this church. How long? And of course, you' know, the verse, and I, I, well, you can read it again, but it was until the destruction. The rebellion of the people had gotten to the place where um, the Tenth tribes up north were already being taken captive, and Babylon was coming to Jerusalem, to Judah and to, Be- and to Benjamin. And so just keep preaching. Just keep preaching. We're in a time of American history in which the church is in the midst of a cultural worldview war. It is being called to compromise, knowing God, to conforming to the cultural beliefs. Its worships have become worthless because sin is no longer addressed and confessed. It has taken on a syncretism and mixed worldview. Its response to a fear of man has has put down the fear of God and its teaching, um, what has been biblically wrong since the time of creation right now. We need a revival. We need a revival. 35 times in the Old Testament, the Bible says, return to me. Zechariah 1 says, return to me, declares the Lord Almighty, and I will return to you. 74 times the scripture calls people to confess their sins and repent and turn from them. Zechariah 1 says these words, And they repented and said, Lord Almighty has done to us what our ways and practices deserve, just as he determined to. As I conclude my time here, I am, I am so thankful for this opportunity. But the moment that Larry asked me to preach here, Isaiah 6 came to mind, flooded to my mind. And it has been with me ever since we talked I don't know why that is, but I know that unless we are, you're a reformed church, I was with you guys for 35 years, I'm in the CRC now. You know what that means? We're just better Christians than you reformers. One of the greatest compliments that I had from somebody at the pier said, I have been at the pier for a year, I didn't realize that you were CRC people. (laughs) As the greatest compliment. I'm not preaching a denomination. I'm preaching Jesus Christ. Amen? And He changes lives. And today, Isaiah 6, I pray that He's coming to your heart and He's revealing to you His sovereignty and His power and that He is the overcomer of all things. I don't care where it is. I pray that He's coming to you and that you start to look in introspective in your own heart and say, you know what? In of myself, I am ruined. And I keep doing things that keep destroying me and not helping me. And I pray that you feel the coal against the very center of your sin today. And you hear him say, I have atoned for your sin. Your guilt is completely gone. And I pray that today, even a young person will say, when you hear the voice of God, here am I.